We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Thank you, my on here. Good deal. I, uh, I'm, I'm still getting used to preaching two services. So I told myself not to sing too much, so I could preserve my voice. And then Sam played my favorite song of all time, Rock of Ages. So that off-tune screeching you heard was me singing my favorite song with my favorite people. So thanks for that, Sam and worship team. Hey, just one quick announcement for you guys, and we're going to jump right in because we have a lot of work to do today. Uh, the announcement is this, that, that next week and the week after, so December 22nd and 29th, uh, there, we will be having a family Sunday. So what that means is there will be no kids. Kids will be staying in the main service and the rooms upstairs will be uh, available for nursing moms, but, but children will be staying in the service. That's, that's my only announcement. So with that being said, let me, uh, let me pray, and we'll jump right into what we have today. God, you're good. You're kind. You're gracious. And as we look at the scene of the fall, those realities become all the more apparent. God, there, there are a lot of hearts in this room 
Some feel secure, some feel worried, some feel sorrow, some feel heavy, some feel cold. And God, I pray that you would do a work amongst all of them. Would you strengthen the strong? Would you strengthen the weak? May you allow all of us, all of our hearts to find rest in you. And be with us as we open your word. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see that you are good. May we worship you through the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word this morning. Be with us, Lord, for your glory and the good of our people. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So they say that you should not judge a book by its cover. And uh, I think this is okay advice. It's not bad advice, right? The, The rationale behind the advice is that oftentimes the quality of the content of the pages is not equivalent to the quality of the content of the cover, right? Oftentimes the cover is worse than the quality of the pages, and sometimes it's the other way around. However, I do think covers do indeed speak. Maybe the advice would be better if instead of saying don't judge a book by its cover, it went you should judge a book by its first sentence or first paragraph. I think this is far better advice. For the first sentence tells you much. The first paragraph, the opening salvo of a drama tells you much about the particular drama. The beginning often from the very outset charts the trajectory of the whole enterprise. For example, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Just in reciting this single clause, images of fuzzy-footed friends are coming to mind across this room. For this is, as you many know, the first sentence of J.R. Tolkien's brilliant novel, The Hobbit. In the first line, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, he immediately introduces to you, to you the cast, these unique hobbits. Or maybe even a better first line, one of the most famous first opening paragraphs in all of literature. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom, it was an age of foolishness. It was an epic of belief, it was an epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, but it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, and it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, and we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, and we were all going direct the other way. This is the beginning paragraph of the harrowing story from Charles Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities. In this single opening paragraph, you already see the juxtaposition between the two cities, right? London and Paris, as you learn, are the cities. You see the juxtaposition in this brilliant and harrowing opening paragraph. Or just one more. Uh, A while back, I was reading a systematic theology textbook where you don't expect to be punched with a gorgeous first sentence, and that's exactly what happened to me. I was reading a theologian named Catherine Sonderegger, and the first five words of her academic textbook gripped my heart and assured my attention as she began her work saying, theology awakens a grateful heart. Theology awakens a grateful heart. And my grateful heart shouted amen as I read through the rest of the book. I wasn't expecting such a devotional punch in the first five words of an academic volume, but it captivated me. And so what we see in literature, in drama, in storytelling of any kind, beginnings are vital. 
The start of the story is important. And I believe one of the biggest mistakes modern Christian, modern Christian readers of the Bible make when approaching the Bible is that they fail to see the whole thing as a unified story. That they don't see it as a unified drama unfolding. Right? The beginning has little to do with the end. The beginning has little to do with the middle. And Christians see it split up into two parts, right? The Old and the New Testament. They see it split up into genres. Parts history, part poetry, part letters, uh, part, part something else. They, they see it split up into books. 66 of them, to be in fact. And all of this diversity, I fear that folks often fail to see the unity. We read the parts as if they have hardly any connection to the whole, but instead are a, are a, it's a book of loosely related anthologies that give individualistic um, and moralistic spiritual stories, but not a unified witness by a unified author on a unified theme. And while the Bible is indeed diverse, it is one unified story, just as The Hobbit and the Tale of Two Cities, with twists and turns and surprises. It is a unified drama with characters and plots, with victories and defeats, and all of it, each syllable, every word, is moving towards a climax as the triune God of the cosmos redeems a fallen humanity to and in himself. This is why it is helpful, this particular Advent season, to do what we're doing. To look at the storyline of Scripture in these four movements, creation, fall, incarnation, consummation, it holds together the entirety of the story for us. And so my goal this morning is to act as uh, something of a baton pass. That's what I want to be. I want to be a baton pass. As the story progresses through these four movements, I hope today's sermon passes the baton from the opening scene of creation to the glorious scene of the incarnation. I'm grabbing the narrative baton from Pastor Adam, who preached on the glory of creation, and I hope by the end to hand the narrative baton to Pastor Sam, who will pick up with the incarnation, and we will do that by looking at the fall of mankind. So grabbing the baton from Pastor Adam, we saw that this story, like every story, has a beginning. And while Tolkien and Dickens are master storytellers, they have nothing on the beginning of this drama. In the beginning. And in three little words, the greatest story ever told begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We saw the wonder of this scene last week as God speaks out of nothing Something. And that something that God speaks out of nothing is nothing other than the cosmos and everything in it. Planets, stars, moons, you, me, our dogs. He speaks it all into being. Yet, if you know the story, the scene changes rather quickly, doesn't it? The peaceful creation, living in harmony with God and one another. The chorus of creatures, all on key, in tune, moving and living off of the sufficiency of what God has made and even God himself. We move from the chorus of peace to a clanging, dysfunctional sound of rebellion by just 
the third chapter of the book. That's where we pick up with our story today. So let us read Genesis 3. And also, be mindful, at the end of the sermon, we're going to flip and read Romans 5. So we'll be in Genesis 3 for most of the day, but we'll also flip to Romans 5. So here's how I want to approach our text today. It'll be very structured, very systematic. So if you're a note taker, you're in luck. I want to work through Genesis 3, 1 through 15, and as we march through this cosmically consequential story, I want to point out seven observations about sin. Okay? Seven observations about sin from Genesis 3, 1 through 15. And then we'll flip to Romans 5 at the end. Observation 1. The foundation of sin is doubting God's word. The foundation of sin is doubting God's word. Let's read verses 1 through 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat any of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. We are introduced to the antagonist immediately. In verse 1, the serpent. We learn later this is none other than Satan himself. And this serpent approaches the mother of mankind, Eve, and he asks her a cunning question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? Notice, he doesn't start with the outright contradiction. We get to that in verse 4 when he says, No, you will not surely die. That's an outright contradiction to the word of the Lord. He doesn't start there, though, does he? He's more cunning than that. No, he starts with, did he actually say? He laces his words in doubt and cynicism and gets Eve off balance by insinuating the ridiculousness of her belief. Did God actually say that? And what we're going to see in this particular sermon is that the tactics of Satan and and the temptations of sin are hardly any different within the confines of the Edenic garden than the 21st century world you and I live in today. The same tactics are being used thousands of years later. Often what pulls us away from God's word is not these outright contradictions or these intellectual arguments. No, it's sarcasm. It's cynicism. It's feeling silly for the preposterous things the Bible would have you actually believe. Wait, you're telling me that you actually believe in a resurrection from the dead? You, in 2019, still believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven with all of these religious options available. You still believe that. You actually think that. Or or maybe you hear it more in the ethical realm. You actually believe that homosexuality is wrong? In in today's world, you believe that? You actually believe that God has created every individual and endowed them with his image such that they bear dignity? You believe that? Friends, remember that sarcasm is not a good argument for anything. It's not a good argument against anything. 
and the twin vices of cynicism and snarkiness would have you abandon your convictions altogether. Sarcasm and cynicism are no friends to sincerity. And notice as well, from the gun, Satan misquotes the Lord, doesn't he? Did you catch it? He asks Eve if God actually said this, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And those familiar with the beginning of the scriptures know that God did not say this. He didn't say this. What God said, if you flip back one chapter, is this. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Much harm can come from misquoting or misusing God's word. Observation number two. Sin often follows from a desire for individual autonomy. Sin often follows from a desire for individual autonomy. Look at verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. As the serpent continues speaking his lies to the woman, it is here that he directly contradicts the word of the Lord, saying, you will not surely die. And this lie becomes the father of all lies. He continues adding an important clause. He misinforms Eve and says that if she partakes of the forbidden fruit, her eyes will be opened and she will be like God. At the bitter root of our sin, from which most other sins sprout, is something like the desire to be God. The desire to trade our place as the creature with that of the creator. We grasp at that which gives us autonomy and self-fulfillment. We pursue control. We run after self-sufficiency. We want to be our own masters, and we want to be the makers of our own destiny. We want nothing short of being our own gods. This from the serpent is an intoxicating lie. And I love the way that one commentator puts it. He said that Satan here convinces the woman that what is actually a suicidal plunge is a leap towards life. Right, what is a suicidal plunge as he sinks her teeth into the deadly fruit because she wants the life-giving wisdom of God is actually a suicidal plunge, and the couple bite themselves and the rest of humanity into destruction. Observation three. Even if you don't doubt God's word is true, sin can come from doubting God's word is good. Even if you don't doubt God's word is true, sin can come from doubting God's word is good. Look at, chapter, look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This verse, verse 6 of the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, ruined the world. 
The deceit of the serpent reaches its climax as the couple reach for the fruit and with cosmic consequences, they sink their teeth into disobedience. With that bite, the pillar of righteousness falls and the collapse is one we can still feel in our bones today. Moreover, in this particular verse and the verses preceding it, we see a rhythm of rebellion, right? A rhythm that you might be familiar with. Eve listened to the creature instead of the creator. She fell for the, destructional, the, the destructive gravitational pull, the magnetic force towards self-autonomy and self-fulfillment and became captivated visually by the false veneer of beauty in sin. This is the rhythm of rebellion and it's one that we know we listen to the world. We feel the pull to be our own masters. We're visually beholding the false beauty of sin, and we sink our own teeth into that which will lead to death. Observation four. Sin leads to shame and fear. Verses seven through ten. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Recall again what the serpent promises the woman. Just a few verses earlier, he says that if she partakes in the fruit, what will happen? Her eyes will be open and she will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, he is in part correct, isn't he? When the woman listens to the deception of the serpent and she takes and eats of the tree, verse 7 says, then both of their eyes were opened, just as the snake predicted. It is as the serpent declared, their eyes were opened and their minds were enlightened. However, instead of being enlightened towards the manifold wisdom of God, the text says they were enlightened and realized that they were naked. Their eyes were indeed opened to their shame. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If you've personally met the sting of shame, or if you know that feeling, or that, that, that's an emotion that, that you're familiar with, you've personally met the sting of shame, you already feel the tremendous heartbreak of what happens in this verse. If you felt that wretched feeling of being too dirty, too gross to be before the Lord and good conscience, you already know how heartbreaking it is to hear the line that those who were once in a beautiful, harmonious communion are now hiding amongst figs and leaves. Shame is devastating. And there's a deep connection between sin and shame. Before the fall, the two lived together in harmony, both in harmony with one another and harmony with God, including sexual harmony. 
And one of the saddest consequences of the fall, and one we feel so strikingly often today, the man and woman became ashamed of their bodies. They were filled with shame in front of one another. And they knew for the first time, they felt the sting of shame for the first time and wanted to hide it. They wanted to hide their shame and to cover up. And as the song says, we've traded our naked and our unashamed for a suit of figs and leaves and lies. You'd be hard-pressed to find a sadder outcome of sin than shame before one another and shame before God. Observation five. Our shame, this is building on the, first, on the, on the previous one, our shame leads to the terrible idea that we should hide from God. Our shame often leads to the terrible idea that we should hide from God. I'm getting this out of verses 8 through, 8 through 10 again, so I'm not going to reread that because I just did for the last observation. But when we feel the depths of our shame and our fear, we want to hide. We don't want you to see it. I don't want you to see it. I don't want God to see it. The impulse of the shamed is to hide. This is also a heartbreaking impulse, for there is no relief from sin or shame apart from the presence of God, yet our shame will convince us that God's presence is bad news. And this is how sin works. Emmaus, sin does not just want part of you. It wants all of you. Once sin has convinced you to choose death by partaking, it will not stop there. It insists even more. Partake in death, it says, but then it goes on to beckon you to not only choose death, but to hide from life. Bite the apple then hide from the one who can forgive. Partake in sexual indulgence, then hide from the one who can heal. Partake in being brutally unkind to others, not loving them, and then hide from the one who heals and shepherds the unloving. Partake in death, then hide from life, is the call of sin. And friends, allow me to just remind you that if you have a sin that is causing your shame, to consistently drive you away from the presence of the Lord, you're running only into deeper despair. There is joy in repentance and life in God. I've been there and can relate to the psalmist who cried out that the hand of the Lord was heavy upon him and who said that it felt as if his bones were withering away inside of him. The first time that I recognized that I was in legitimate habitual sin, right? Sin that wasn't going to be easy just to shake, but the one that kept haunting, right? And you think you have it beat, and then it rears its ugly head again, and you think you have it beat, and you walk out the door and to find out it was just crouching right there waiting for you. The habitual sin. The first time I found myself in it, I'll never forget the joylessness of the season. The tendency we see in Adam and Eve to run from the presence of the Lord in shame for me manifested itself primarily at night as I would lay my head down on the pillow, a time when I would typically pray when things were going all right. 
I went through a multi-month season of despair in which my shame was so deep that in lieu of praying each night, I would repeat the same line as I slowly gave up on prayer. And the line was this, God, I love you, and I'm sorry. God, I love you, and I'm sorry. The sorry on my lips wasn't repentance. It was apology for the reality of how gross I felt. I'm sorry that you've wasted your blood on this. I'm sorry that you carried the burdens of this. I'm sorry that I even have the audacity to tell you that I love you when my actions are so obviously proclaiming a different message. God, I love you, and I'm sorry. I didn't have figs and leaves to hide behind, but I had this one line that I concocted in my head which kept me from bringing my shame truly before the Lord. Every single night. Friends, apart from the Lord, there is no life. Emmaus, in him, there is fullness of life. Go to him. Go to him. I don't have to contextualize this pastoral charge, whether you're feeling the, 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 the soaring victory of righteousness or the stinging despair of shame or somewhere in between. If that's you and that's all of us, go to him. For the victorious and the losing, go to him. In your hiding place of shame, you're hiding from nothing but joy and rest. Observation six. In sin, we often attempt to blame shift our guilt away and look for a scapegoat. In sin, we often attempt to blame shift our guilt away and look for a scapegoat. Our second to last observation is a relatable one, right? The impulse to blame shift, to find excuses or self-justify when we're caught in sin and shame. Look at verses 11 through 13. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Do you see it? The blame shifting, the, the, the movement of responsibility. And one thing to point out before we move on to our final observation is that neither the man or the woman lied here, did they? Eve really did give Adam the fruit. Adam wasn't lying. Eve really was deceived by the serpent. She wasn't lying. And this is a good and this is a good word and warning for us as well for we will there will sure be times that we are found with the with the bitten fruit in our hands and we will want to blame shift and find a scapegoat however righteousness takes responsibility as Christians righteousness takes responsibility and we can own our own sins because we know exactly where to take them. Observation seven, final observation. Sin will not have the final word. Sin will not have the final word. Look at verses 14 through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock 
and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Hatred for snakes is just biblical. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. If you've ever gone to a jewelry store to, to buy a, a nice piece of jewelry, something with diamonds on it, what you see there um, is when, when you come up to the jewelry store, all of the diamond-encrusted uh, jewelry is on black velvet, right? And there's a reason they do this. It's because the, 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 black, the darkness of the black velvet helps the ring to pop. Right? It helps you see the, the, the glittering shininess of the ring, and it makes you want it because the, the beauty of the ring is even more beautiful when put against the contrast of the dark black velvet. And what we have here is the diamond amongst our six observations of dark black velvet. This would not be a Christian sermon if we treated Genesis 3, 1 through 15, by just pointing out a few realities about sin and went on. For the Christian message is not just you're a sinner. It entails that, yes, but the Christian message is that you're a sinner and, and God just happens to be in the business of saving sinners. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To me, the most remarkable portion of this particular story is not Satan manifesting via serpent, it's not Adam's and, Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. It's not even their heartbreaking response of shame and fear in response to the first sin. The most remarkable portion of the story for me is that when Adam and Eve did transgress against God's holy command, he came to them. He could have ended the whole thing right there. Just pulled the plug on the whole thing. Look, I gave you one prohibition. One, this is the ultimate, you had one job. I gave you one prohibition. Everything else was permissible. One, and you couldn't obey it. If this is the first fruits of the humankind, I'm pulling the plug on the whole thing. You too, you will die justly in your sin and there will never be another one like you. That would have been a just response. It would have been. We know the wages of sin is death, and if they would have died right there in all of humanity with them, that would have been just. But that's not how the story ends, is it? This would have been a totally appropriate response, but sin doesn't get the final word, and as the Lord approaches the guilty, he promises that a snake crusher is coming and will come and once and for all deal with sin and shame. And in the words of God in Genesis 3, we get the first taste of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we are told that the offspring of the woman will have a heel that will one day victoriously stamp down the skull of the serpent. One book says, uh, one theologian says that the storyline of scripture is that Jesus is going to slay the dragon and get the girl. And here we see it, right? 
He slays the dragon of the serpent like every fairy tale. He, the, the dragon is slayed and the girl is one. And Jesus victoriously in his life, death, and resurrection slays the dragon of sin and shame. And on his right side is the church, the girl that he purchased with his own blood. The storyline of scripture is that Jesus will slay the dragon and get the girl. Flip to Romans 5 with me as we end here. Romans 5, start at verse 12, and just, just let your eyes follow as I'm reading and, and, and process the glory of this diamond behind the black velvet of our six observations. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, but was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Then jump to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And how glorious is this? Disobedience and death come in Adam, but righteousness and life come in that man, Jesus Christ. And it is here that I return to my introduction regarding the importance of keeping the story together. We miss much beauty, the smorgasbord of glory, if we divorce the beginning from the middle or the end. And as we keep this story together, what we see by contrasting Genesis 3 with Romans 5 is that the glory of Jesus showcases itself in undoing all of the wickedness found in the garden. And don't miss this. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, he undoes our six wicked observations. Follow me. Observation one, Jesus never doubts God's word, but he obeys it to its bitter end. Observation two, instead of fighting for his own autonomy, which, by the way, he actually deserved, he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, putting himself under the angels and even underneath you. Not only does he obey the Lord, the law of the Lord in its totality, but he's consistently throughout his life proclaiming its goodness and its trustworthiness, and he himself is the embodiment of the goodness of the law of the Lord. Observation four, instead of leading to shame and fear, these two twin vices will find their death in his death. Observation five, as the promised snake crusher, he goes after those who are hiding in their own figs and leaves and lies, and he brings them united to himself, not away from, but directly into the fullness of the presence of God. Observation six, he becomes the ultimate scapegoat. As the only innocent one who ever lived, 
And instead of the reward of the righteous, he gets the penalty of the wicked. And the entirety of the church's sins are placed directly upon him as he bears with full atonement the wrath of God. The wicked cultivated in the garden is undone in the sun. The deception of the serpent who beckoned Adam and Eve, come, take, and eat of the tree will give way to the grace of Jesus who beckons all humanity, come, take, and eat of my body. The lie that led to the destruction on the lips of Satan, you will not surely die will give way to the truth that leads to life on the lips of Jesus, I will surely die. Death came in the first Adam, but eternal life in the second Adam, who is none other than Christ the righteous. So as we simply pass the baton this week, as I take the baton from Pastor Adam and hand it to Pastor Sam, we make room for the incarnation. We transition in our unified drama, our unified story from creation to incarnation, and we can feel it, can't we? The wait in the request and the cry of the redeemed. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. God, that point isn't uh, 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 just an anecdotal way to end a sermon. God, we beg you, come. Come. Maranatha, Lord, make it quick. Lord, I pray we don't even make it to Christmas before I see your eyes. Come quickly, Lord. Lord, as we progress in this Advent season, may that weight of anticipation and longing for you grow within our heart. May we feel it within the deepest parts of our bones that we want you. God, and and as we talk about sin in the fall this week, Lord, let us not leave in despair over sin unless that's how you would have us leave if we're still in it. But for those who have moved on from death to life in our union with you from from, from death to life, God, may we leave here not feeling burdened by the past of this story in a garden, but encouraged and rejoicing in the story of Golgotha. You're good to us, Lord. We thank you for being the snake crusher. We thank you for giving us your righteousness when we didn't deserve it and taking our death when you didn't deserve it. We love you, we praise you, we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, we end every week here with communion. And so like every week, you can come to your left, come down and take from one of the three tables. Uh, We would ask that if you're a non-believer, if this, what I have said, isn't true for you yet, that you haven't yet been united to Christ by faith, uh, then don't come. Your coming would be nothing other than a hollow religious activity, and that's not what we're trying to orchestrate here. But if you have put your faith in Christ, come commune with one another and with the Lord at the table as we feast on the body and bread of Jesus. Come, come down to this side, take, and go back that way. Emmaus, we love you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.